Hello, friends. It's great to be back with you for another episode of the In Focus podcast, taking a fresh look at the Bible, some big Christian ideas, and how they bring our world into focus, empowering us to live new, more eternal kinds of lives within it. I'm your host, Justin Laughlin, husband, dad, pastor, and most importantly, follower and disciple of Jesus Christ. We are headed back to Luke 19 today to wrap up this series back where we began. And we're doing so with a thoughtful look at two very big, very important Christian ideas that lie near the heart of this parable, faithfulness and judgment. Here's why they are so important. Faithfulness is the measure by which people are judged before the king and by which they transition into his eternal kingdom. This makes both faithfulness and judgment very important concerning the business at hand. And here's why these two ideas also need their own episode. There are some bad ideas out there about faithfulness, and there are some bad ideas out there about judgment. And bringing all of those bad ideas to the surface together, as this parable might be prone to doing, warrants at least a good faith effort, pun intended, to sort out the bad ideas from the good so that we can bring faithfulness and judgment into focus. Let's start this process of sorting and focusing with judgment. There are a handful of clear, consistent passages about judgment in the New Testament. So let's begin by hearing what God has to say for himself about what we should expect concerning judgment. Here are four exemplary passages about judgment from four different books of the New Testament and from three different authors in the order that they appear. First in Romans chapter 2 verses 6 through 8. God will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, God will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And from 1 Peter 1, verses 17 through 19, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And finally, from Revelation 20, verses 12 and 13, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So what do we learn here? How is judgment starting to come into focus? Perhaps most importantly, we should note that there is a judgment. People will ultimately have to stand before God to be judged. Jesus knew it. Paul knew it. Peter knew it, John knew it, everyone knew it, and we should know it too. Additionally, we will not be judged by our beliefs, our intentions, our emotions, or our affections. We will be judged by our actions. Now, what we believe and feel and intend is no doubt important, but it's what we actually do about what we believe and feel and intend that counts. It's for our doing that we will ultimately be judged. 
In case this doesn't seem quite right based on something you've heard or not heard in your religious and church experience, that's why we need to hear what the Bible has to say. And it's much easier to make sense of what the Bible has to say about judgment when we keep in mind what else the Bible has to say about everything else, namely the eternal story that is unfolding within it from start to finish. From the beginning, people were created to live and work and walk with God. We were created to reflect God's likeness and order and blessing everywhere we went. We were created in God's image and likeness to govern the world with God and on God's behalf. In other words, we were created to not just be something, but to do. Doing is who we are. It's God's design for us. The epic problem we've all been experiencing is that we've all succumbed to the temptation to work out for ourselves what's good and bad, what we'd like to be doing, and how we'd like to be doing it. So Jesus came to show us the way, to make the way for us to be reconciled back to God, back to each other, back to the way things were supposed to be. And until that happens, until everything is back the way it was always supposed to be, Jesus' redemptive mission continues. People everywhere need to hear the good news that God is reconciling the whole world back to himself in and through Jesus Christ. They need to hear the good news that Jesus has made a way for them to take part and to have part in both the redemptive mission and the redeemed creation that is yet to come. They need to understand that they haven't been left here on their own in the meantime. The Holy Spirit is here among us, present and powerful in the lives of all those who follow Jesus and who embrace him as Savior and King. And then once this work is done, the work of the current redemptive mission in and through Jesus Christ, then we'll still have work to get back to, that work of reigning and governing this world under King Jesus forever and ever, just as Revelation chapter 22 verse 5 foresees. For the kind of people who don't want to work with God, who don't want to be part of what God is doing in the world, then we're simply not the kind of people who will fit or who would even be happy in the eternal kingdom that is yet to come. So judgment, just as the Bible anticipates and describes, makes sense. Now, before moving on to faithfulness, which is equally important and potentially equally misunderstood, a quick word about justification. And this is going to stretch our imaginations and our understanding a little bit. Despite the fact that we are judged according to our works, we are not justified according to our works. The Bible is just as adamant about this point as it is adamant that we are judged by our works. This might be worthy of a whole other episode, but the Bible unequivocally dismisses any efforts we might make to justify ourselves through what it calls works of the law, works of self-justification, in other words. What's tricky is that sometimes the Bible text specifies works of the law, exactly using those words, and sometimes it just says works in a generic sense, referring to works of the law. But what the Bible affirms is that we have been saved by grace through faith for good works. And these good works constitute the doing by which those who have been saved by grace through faith will then be judged when we stand before God and transition into the new creation and God's eternal reign over it. Yes, it's a lot to take in, 
but it's all there repeatedly in the New Testament, so take it and we must. And of course, to make sure we're always reading our Bibles with our brains turned on, sometimes the biblical text also shortens good works down to just works. So in some cases, the only way to be sure which kind of quote-unquote works are being referenced in a given passage, either works of self-justification or the good works for which we have been saved, the only way to tell which one is being referenced is by paying attention to the context in which the word works appears. Unfortunately, uh, once we know this to be the case and we know what to be looking for, it's actually not that difficult. So, there's judgment in focus, hopefully. And now, what about faithfulness, uh, which is intricately connected with judgment? To bring faithfulness into focus, we need to understand three important things, which we will go through one at a time. First, faithfulness is holistic. Second, faithfulness is relative. And third, regarding King Jesus, faithfulness is allegiance. So, let's start with a faithfulness that is holistic. Faithfulness is a translation of the Greek word pistis. And what we need to be aware of from the outset is that the same word, pistis, is also sometimes translated as the word faith as it comes to us in the English Bibles. So, this matters because in English, we can be prone to a different understanding of these two words, sometimes equating faith with ideas and mental assent and belief and such things, whereas we might be more inclined to equate faithfulness with action and response. But that's not the way things work in the original language, and therefore such distinctions are not what the authors of the Bible intended Having previously referenced Ephesians 2.8, let's go back to it here to appreciate what is at stake with all this pistis, faith, faithfulness stuff. Here's Ephesians 2.8 with Paul's original word first left in and then with the two translation options. For by grace you have been saved through pistis, which is commonly translated, for by grace you have been saved through faith but which also includes this nuance, for by grace you have been saved through faithfulness. And what's the point here? In order to bring faithfulness into focus, we need to understand how it was used in the New Testament. And there was just one word for both faith and faithfulness there. So if we are to rightly understand what we are reading, we must make the same connection in our thinking. The nuances of faith and faithfulness should be complementary and connected, not exclusive. To be a person of faith is to be a faithful person and vice versa. To be judged by our faithfulness is to be judged as a person of faith whose faith is in action. In other words, biblically speaking, the doing by which we are judged cannot be divorced from our being and thinking and believing. Instead, the doing only exposes the kind of people that we actually are and the beliefs that are actually most determinative in our lives. This is the argument that James so provocatively makes when he states that faith without works is dead in James 2.17 and, and I quote, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's in James chapter 2 verse 24. So, faith is holistic. 
It's what we do and who we are and what we believe all rolled into one evaluation by which we are ultimately judged. Faithfulness is also relative. Matthew records a parable in Matthew chapter 25 that is very similar to the one we've been looking at in Luke chapter 19. And as with many parables, apparently this was one of Jesus's favorites that he shared on more than one occasion and with slight variations in the details. And when Jesus told the parable on this occasion, the servants were given different amounts of money according to their respective abilities. And then upon the king's return, one servant who had been given 100 years wages was commended for his faithfulness for earning another 100 years worth of wages. A second servant who was given only 40 years worth of wages and who earned only 40 years worth of wages was equally commended for his faithfulness. And then again, the third servant who was given the least amount and from whom the king had no return on his investment had everything taken away. The added variables in this version of Jesus' parable are clear. Faithfulness is relative. The servant given much must be faithful with much, and the servant given little must be faithful with little. But no matter how much any servant is given, faithfulness is still the measure. Consider also one of Jesus' final teaching moments with the disciples before his crucifixion. This encounter is recorded for us in Luke chapter 21, verses 1-4. through 4. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. In Jesus' reflections, there's both great relief and humility. If you've struggled in your efforts to serve the king because of the seemingly insignificant contribution you have to make, do not worry. It's your faithfulness that matters and nothing else. If you are faithful with little, you will be faithful with much and rewarded with much in the eternal kingdom, according to Luke 16.10. But if, on the other hand, you find yourself at ease and perhaps even a little impressed with the value of what you contribute to the kingdom— then you should be very wary. If you have not been faithful and have only given out of your great excess that God has given, then what you have done may be very well dismissed by the king, because faithfulness is as relative as it is holistic. And finally, regarding the king of kings and lord of lords, faithfulness is allegiance. Let us consider three real-world examples. First, a faithful spouse. What is a faithful spouse? A faithful spouse is not just someone who exchanged wedding vows properly. A faithful spouse is not someone who simply believes in marriage. It's not even someone who is just monogamous. As anyone who is married understands, to be a genuinely faithful spouse means a million different things day after day after day. It means ongoing presence and love and response and service. Second, How about in business? What makes for a faithful business partner? Acting in good faith is not just a matter of closing a business deal. Good faith does not mean remembering that a deal was set in place. Acting in good faith means that you are holding up your end of the deal on your behalf and on behalf of your business partner. It means that you're living by the deal that was struck and you are now operating by different standards and along a 
particular course as a matter and expression of your good faith. Both in business and marriage, of course, there's an element of trust. As Jody's husband, I'm trusting her to reciprocate faithfulness to me. In a business deal, you're trusting your partner to reciprocate in good faith. This is part of the consideration, but the part that comes before you enter into a covenant in which you pledge your faithfulness to another. And once the covenant is struck, your actions will speak for themselves. You will either be faithful or you will not. You will live and operate in good faith or you will not. Your actions may only reflect the kind of person that you truly are, but it is those actions that count in the end, in marriage and in business, which finally brings us to allegiance. What if the one to whom we are pledging our faithfulness is not our spouse or our business partner? What if we are pledging our faithfulness to a king and to his kingdom purposes? We do have a pointed and clear word for this in the English language that helps keep faithfulness clear in our minds. That word for faithfulness to a king is allegiance. To be a faithful subject of a king is to live in faithful allegiance. It's an allegiance founded on trust and belief and confidence in the king, but it is and must be a lived reality in a million different ways, day after day after day. Faithfulness to a king is unwavering, persistent, daily allegiance. Jesus is not our spouse or our business partner. He is the king. He is the king who gave his life to save us and to make a place for us in his eternal kingdom. He is loving and patient and gentle and kind, but he is king nonetheless. A king who deserves our full and faithful allegiance. A king who will usher us into his eternal kingdom with extraordinary grace and generosity in response to our allegiance here and now. And finally, to wrap up not only this episode, but this entire series, let's go back in history to the events that no doubt inspired this parable and which would have made it particularly poignant in the hearts and minds of Jesus' first hearers. Around the time of Jesus' birth, a ruler named Herod the Great reigned over a huge region in the Middle East. Herod the Great had four sons, and initially he wrote a will naming his son Antipas as heir over Judea and Samaria. Later, he wrote a second will naming Archelaus as heir over the same region. Complicating things even further, anything Herod willed would have to first be validated by Rome, the larger empire under which all local governance took place. A lot of us will also be familiar with the typical pattern of how leaders came into power and held power in those days, by killing anyone and everyone who was a threat. Brothers, friends, associates, servants, pretty much anyone. We see this violent pattern play out numerous times in the Old Testament, and early in the New Testament by Herod the Great himself. When several wise men came traveling through the country one day, informing Herod of a sign in the heavens that a king had been born, after a little research, the sign was also connected to an ancient prophecy about a king who would come to save and deliver his people. At that point, Herod modeled for his own four boys exactly how to respond to such a threat. He killed all the baby boys in that given region as a proactive measure to prevent any of them from growing up and decades later doing what those prophecies foretold. 
So a generation later, when Herod died and the kingdom was up for grabs between competing heirs, both claiming their right to the throne, it was a genuinely life and death matter. If you were called into service by one of the potential heirs and you guessed correctly and your guy came back the winner and the king, you would be richly rewarded for your faithfulness. But if you guessed wrong and the other guy was appointed king, you were in big, big trouble and were probably going to die for your misplaced faithfulness to the king's greatest rival. It was an unavoidable dilemma and an unmistakable message. Your allegiance matters. The kicker of the parable, coming from the real life circumstances, is that there was no opting out. There was no choice but to make a choice, and there is no choice but to make a choice. Faithful allegiance, outright opposition, or try to go about your own business, being a good enough person and playing it safe until the final outcome is known. It's all a choice, and your life does depend on it. So choose wisely and live accordingly. So what's our choice and what are we going to do about it? Simple. Let's get down to business. Be a disciple, make disciples, increasingly learn to abide in Jesus and to obey him. Next, know the gospel, know how to share the gospel, practice sharing the gospel, and then be ready to share it anywhere and everywhere you have opportunity. And as you go about your everyday life, anywhere and everywhere you have opportunity, help people be reconciled to God and to each other and to the world around them. And do all of this in the grace, the fellowship, the presence, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And then one day the king will return. You're not going to conquer the world in the meantime, and Jesus isn't asking you to, so don't worry about that. Your king is good and gracious. He gave his life in faithful service to his father to ensure the eternal kingdom and to make a way for you to have a place in it. And when the time comes for that transition into that eternal kingdom, he will be looking for your faithfulness, your trust, your allegiance. By his amazing grace and his spirit with us and in us, that's just the kind of lives that we can live each and every day between now and then. So let's get to it. Time is ticking and the king is coming. Thanks for joining me for this episode, wrapping up the business at hand. I hope that it has helped bring your world into a little better focus and has empowered you to live a more eternal kind of life here and now as we await the return of our king. If you're streaming today's episode from a podcast provider, it'd be great if you take a second to give it a good review and become a subscriber. Your engagement helps new listeners to find the show in the future. If you'd like, you can also share this episode directly with your friends on social media. A link is provided in the show notes to do just that. Until next time, thanks again for being a friend of the show and for tuning in to End Focus. May your world continue coming into clear focus and may God lead you into an increasingly eternal kind of life before him.